Before we look into God's word together, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're humbled to think that our gathering here this morning is in commemoration of the greatest event in human history, that we gather the first day of the week, and especially this day, to remember thy resurrection power and how thy resurrection changed everything for man. What was once hopeless became light and hope on this glorious day. Heavenly Father, guide our meditation this morning. Speak to us. Be our unseen guest here this morning that the words that we hear would come from thee. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lord's help, I've chosen to read a passage of Scripture from Mark's Gospel. If you'll turn with me there. I'd like to actually start towards the end of the the 15th chapter and read through the 16th. I'm going to begin reading with verse 42 in the 15th chapter. This picks up immediately after Christ's death on the cross. And now, when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, and took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had, brought, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they, come, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. 
He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. I've read the entire chapter. Knowing that today is the day where the world marks the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, I thought it would be appropriate to select a passage of Scripture to read on that subject. And as I was thinking about this subject and, and considering the different accounts that are given in the Gospels of what happened that glorious Sunday morning. I was drawn to the account in Mark's Gospel. I think sometimes people may not be aware, but Mark's Gospel was, I believe, the first that was recorded after Christ's death and resurrection. It was penned by the young disciple John Mark. Some think perhaps from the account given to him from Peter. I don't know for sure, and really it's not important. The real author is the Holy Spirit of God. The Gospel of Mark strikes me as, as an appropriate style for the first account of what happened in the life of Christ. He uses words like suddenly. It's almost like he couldn't write fast enough in places. Things are recorded. It's little snatches and snippets. Luke is much more methodical in his, in his method of laying out the gospel so that people could verify fact and dates. Mark is not concerned with that. He simply records the people. And so I'm so thankful that the gospel, we have four different writers that re recorded these events, and we can compare and we can see some of these little, these little bits 
uh, uh, opened up like a flower in, in other accounts. More detail is given. But I still value Mark's account and how he gives us these little vignettes, these little snapshots, if you will, of the characters and the events immediately following our Lord's death. I chose to begin with the 42nd verse of the previous chapter because it talks about the, some characters that have been in the shadows. It mentions here Joseph of Arimathea. In another place, it also mentions Nicodemus. I find it interesting to see how these great events reveal what was really in the hearts of people, what was on their minds, what they found important, and how they reacted. And I think there's a great deal for us to learn from how this happened. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, counselors from the Sanhedrin, it would seem, the Jewish council. It says, I believe, that he was a disciple secretly, and you can see how as he, uh, things are brought up to the council, he tries to speak a word, or Nicodemus tries to speak a word that would steer the conversation and the thoughts of those there to be perhaps a little bit more sympathetic to Jesus Christ and his message. But now, if there was any doubt in people's minds about what was really in the heart of these men, I think those doubts are laid to rest. At the moment when Jesus could do nothing for Joseph or for Nicodemus, they stepped forward. I think that should give us pause to think. When we have nothing to gain, how do we behave? When no one is watching, what do we do? How do we treat those that we can receive no benefit from? These men, think of it, their reputation, their social connections would be totally destroyed by what they were doing here. And it was to no benefit of themselves. They probably would have been thrown out of the Sanhedrin after this. I don't know what happened to them after that. I didn't do any kind of research myself. But that they would take such a bold step. It says he went in boldly to Pilate to beg the body of Jesus. He was not concerned. He laid it in his own tomb. The follow-up question to this that I was thinking of is, where were his disciples? Where were his disciples? Those men that had pledged even to die with Christ. They went into hiding. They would not even pay the respect to his body that Joseph and Nicodemus did. I think this shows us that we really can't judge a book by its cover, as the saying goes. Brave words and good times are not enough. What will we do in the crisis hour? How will we behave? I pray that I will have a heart like Joseph to not be concerned 
about taking an account of how is this going to affect me? Jesus is dead. He's gone. Nothing can be done further. Hope died that day for Christ's disciples. Hope was gone. He was dead. They knew it. Joseph himself buried him. Hope died. But love didn't die. I find it interesting to see what the scripture says about the women. In the 47th verse, it simply says, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. The women never deserted Christ. You men, we may think of women sometimes as fickle. Of course, Shakespeare writes on that subject, and other authors have covered that as well. But when it came down to it, they were the steadfast ones, and the men were the fickle ones. They were the ones that did an accounting of things and Well, we can't be involved in this. I can't. Peter ran at the accusation of a girl. When she said, you also, you were with him. He denied and ran. But the women did not leave his side. They went with him to the cross. They followed him up the Via Doloroso to the cross. They sat there and watched the gory proceedings and did not even leave when it was time to take down that broken body. They even went to the tomb where that body was going to be laid. A famous author once said, she was a female, she said, I will claim this one distinction for my sex. We love longest when hope is lost. I thought that's a very apt description for these women and what they did. And in return for the love that that they showed their Lord, the Lord revealed himself first to the women. Some will say the Lord doesn't have favorites. That's not true. He does. Abraham was called his friend. Even of the 12 disciples, he selected three for special moments. John, the one who laid on his breast, who he says, the one whom Jesus loved. I like that title. He didn't try to take the title, the one who loved Jesus. Because we realize, after any length of time following the Lord, that our love often waxes and wanes, depending on circumstance. But the one whom Jesus loved, he was given a special view of what would happen afterwards. So the Lord has favorites, and among his favorites were the women. It's interesting to see how they went about this. They rested on the Sabbath according to the scriptures. They would not break the law. They rested on the Sabbath as scripture said. 
but they only rested the bare minimum. It says when it was early. They were up and ready. My guess is that they probably had stayed up a good portion of the night preparing those spices and getting things ready to take to the tomb. It gives us a list. The list is more complete in other Gospels of these women. They brought sweet, sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. The language in the King James Version is very beautiful. And in the beauty and power of the language, sometimes we miss the unpleasant details that would be there. And I don't intend to dwell on them, but think about this. A body that had been dead, killed in a horrible way. Rigor mortis would have already set in. And these women were going to take this job upon themselves of embalming that body. Why? Simply because they loved him. What a testimony. What a picture. We say we love the Lord. But how often is that love based on sort of a user kind of love? We love the Lord as long as he's doing stuff for us. As long as life is good. As long as my children are well behaved, as long as I have a good job, as long as I have a roof over my head, as long as I have food on the table, then love comes easy. But these women had lost everything, and yet they loved. They loved so much that they did not even consider the obstacles. They were on their way there, and they said one to another, who will roll the stone away for us? The stone was huge. For those who may not understand how this worked, it was a large carved wheel that sat in a trough in front of the grave. It could not easily be opened and shut. It required probably many strong men to roll that stone wheel out of the way, opening the door into the tomb. These women realized, they saw where he had been laid, they realized that they would be unable to roll away that stone. But they didn't bring anyone with them. Perhaps in their grief, they had neglected and just simply remembered on the way there, what are we going to do about the stone? We, we've prepared the spices, we have the wrappings, the linen, but what about the stone? What will we do about that? But they didn't turn back, they kept going. It's unclear to me at what point faith, true saving faith, takes, took hold in this account. They had heard, of course, that Christ was going to resurrect. Jesus himself said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. But how much they understood, I don't know. But they went anyway. And what a surprise when they got there. The stone was already gone. It makes no mention here about the soldiers that were guarding that tomb or when exactly they left. 
but we know from other accounts what happened to them. They were scared out of their wits. An angel descended and opened the tomb. Christ came forth in all his glory. And the priests had to pay hush money to those soldiers to spread a false rumor that obviously didn't stick because we see what happened in Acts. But when they get there, no one is there. The stone is rolled away, and so the women went in. It's interesting to see that they entered into the sepulcher. It wasn't enough to simply go up to the entrance. They had to go in. And what a sight inside. A young man sitting there, clothed in the long white garment, with a message not of despair but hope. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And then the message, go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. Perhaps there is someone here this morning that hears these, this account and thinks, this is all good for women that really love the Lord and for men that were bold to do what was unexpected. But not for me. I've blown it. I've made my mistakes. I've made a mess of my life. That's exactly what Peter felt. In his big moment, his big opportunity to show that he really could stand behind the words that he said, he blew it. And not even by a little bit. It's said of him that every time he heard a cock crow after that, that he wept when he remembered his denial of the Lord. I don't know if that's true. I think that might just be a fabrication. Because I think when the Lord spoke with him and strengthened his faith and had this message specifically for him, go tell the disciples and Peter, I think that could bring hope again. God does not intend for any of us to wallow in guilt. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. They had an unbelievable story, and they knew it. But in another account, it tells us about Mary Magdalene and how she stayed there and spoke with the angels and how a man came and she thought he was the gardener and I always thought about that one how, how was she confused well, she had probably been doing a great deal of weeping and had trouble seeing through her tears and it wasn't until the man spoke and said her name that she realized who this man was and Christ sent the message with the women to the disciples and they didn't believe. Are we picky sometimes with how we choose to hear the word of God spoken to us? Because it's not coming from some sort of an uh, approved source or 
some kind of a person that we respect or has a similar viewpoint to us that we have trouble accepting the word of the Lord? Be careful. You don't know who the Lord is going to use to speak to you. Verse 12 gives us just a little snippet that's expanded on in Luke. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. We know that these two were the two that were on the road to Emmaus. And in that little lesson, I see another thing that I didn't see before. What were they doing? Christ came up to them, it says in Luke, and said, what manner of conversations are these that you're having and are sad? They were talking about the Lord. They were talking about the Lord. And in the process of talking about the Lord, Jesus himself appeared. Is that not a lesson for us in our conversation? How often it is easy instead to speak about events of the workplace, items in the news, things of general interest, but not speak of the Lord. Yet there is a special blessing when we do speak of him. It says, he is in our midst. And so it was here in, in, a, in, a, in a physical way that as these men went together and talked about the Lord and the things that had happened, Jesus himself was there and they knew it not. How often has that happened to you or to me? That we have a conversation about the Lord and, and it's not until afterwards when we reflect back on that conversation and said, yeah, did not my heart burn within me when we were speaking about these things? The Lord must have been there according to his word. I like how it records in Luke as well that as soon as they realized it was the Lord, the, Jesus vanished out of their sight and then it was not too late. Then the day was not far spent. They got up and went back that same hour to Jerusalem. There was no concern for bandits or night anymore. They went back. And even they didn't, uh, the disciples didn't believe their account. Christ sent first the women. They didn't believe. He sent then men. They still didn't believe. And finally, Jesus Christ himself went. And Christ doesn't let anyone off. No, he upbraided them for the hardness of their heart. He's not one to ignore error. He didn't say, oh, that's okay. You went through a really stressful time in your life. It's been really, really troubling for you, and uh, I didn't want to bother you. He upbraided them for their unbelief. But that wasn't all he did. He encouraged them as well. He then gives them instructions, and these instructions still hold true for anyone who calls himself a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be witnesses in this lost world. I don't consider myself an evangelist. That is a specific gift it talks about. But I do believe that I can be a witness. And being a witness doesn't always mean to do that with words. It can be done in other ways as well. But it better be done and it better be done consistently. Because there's a lost world slipping into eternity around us. I was reminded of a time Grace and I went to Niagara Falls 
It was nighttime. And we were walking along the edge of the falls. There's a short railing, and you get to the part where it's the edge. And you're watching water ceaselessly go over that edge. Thousands and thousands of liters every minute. And I thought about that and thought, this is the world in which we live. That edge is death. Millions are pouring over that edge every second. Uh, maybe not every second. It's probably an exaggeration. Thousands anyway. Every second. And we watch. We watch. What would our Lord have us do? The interesting thing is he hasn't left us. We talk about the resurrection and the ascension, but that isn't the end of the story. And I'd like to close with the final two verses. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. His work is completed in one sense, but it is not in another because we know what he is doing there on the right hand of the Father. It says he is interceding for us. Why? Because we need it. He is interceding for us. He doesn't say, I've done my bit, now it's up to you. He intercedes for us, for our weaknesses, for our failures. He pleads his blood and says, look what I have done for that one. But that's not all he does. The next verse says, and they went forth preaching everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Someone once asked the question, does the Lord still suffer? The answer is, yes, he does. Why can I say that with certainty? Because his body is still here. His body is still here. He feels what we feel. When he stopped the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou, not my disciples, why persecutest thou me? He feels what we're going through. He experiences that. What a blessing to know that our Lord has not left in the sense that we leave someone. But he's still very much with us. Still very much here among us. And not only that, but he sent his comforter to be in us. This is perhaps the most astounding truth of the Christian faith. That my God can live inside of me. That fact floors me. It still causes me to stop and wonder. How could he live inside of me? Me with my own shortcomings and faults as well. That the great temple that Solomon built could not contain him, and yet he says, I will live inside of that one. Amazing. But even in the resurrection, we get the final picture of what Christ's message was. Christ did not come to make bad men 
good. That is a lie. He came for one reason, to make dead men live. And we see that in the resurrection. May the Lord act what was lacking. Amen.